Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. Well, church, I want to confess something this morning right from the top. Um, Several months ago, Dale and I met and we began to lay out what all eight weeks of this series would look like. We began to go over the questions that were submitted by you, the church, on trending topics. And we laid out what week we would each teach and what we would teach on. And I walked out of that meeting knowing full and well that today I would be teaching on the subject based on the question of what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And I will confess to you, I walked out of there with an extra weight on my shoulders because I know full and well the controversy and the sensitivity that comes around this subject, not just within our culture, but within churches anymore as well. And so what didn't help was that weight kept burdening me. And I, that night, I actually went and I met with some friends and they did not help the situation. I told them what I would be teaching on and they just kept adding to that weight saying, yes, this is, this is controversial. This, in fact, one of them even said, good luck with that. He said, because everyone has their own opinion and anymore it's a very strong opinion, no matter which way it goes. Everyone has their own opinion. Every preacher has their own opinion. Every church, every, everyone you're going to be speaking this to has their own opinion. So good luck. And that just added the weight to my shoulders. And I carried that way for a few days. Until that weekend, I knew I needed to take this to God in prayer. So that's what I did. In church, I felt such a peace in that moment. Because the Holy Spirit began to stir in me. And the Holy Spirit reminded me of the moment I was on this stage and I was ordained by the leadership of this church. And they gave me a charge as a minister. It's the same charge that Paul, gave, that Paul gave Timothy, and that is to preach the word of God, not man's opinion. And to not let man's opinion affect the teaching of the word of God. And so that's what I want to do this morning, because I realized they, the answer was in the question all along. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? And that's what I want to do this morning. And I please, I do recognize the sensitivity, and please know that if you don't agree with every little thing I say, that's okay. We are still friends. We are still brothers and sisters in Christ. But I do hope you know that whomever teaches from this stage, whether it be Dale, myself, any one of the other people in leadership, I hope you know that it is our desire to teach the word of God and nothing else, regardless of the subject. And that leads me to say something because I want us to be on the same page moving forward. And that is this. The Bible is not meant to affirm our decisions. We don't make up our mind about something and then go to the Bible to confirm what we have already decided. The Bible makes those decisions for us. The Bible is not meant to affirm. If you do that, you will probably find a scripture that you can take out of text, make into a loophole, just to affirm your opinion. And friends, that is a dangerous place to be. 
The Bible is not meant to affirm. The Bible is meant to lead us into a place of transformation based upon what Jesus did on the cross and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is meant to expose you and me, to expose the areas of our life where we have fallen short and help us recognize that we all have a profound need for a savior. And that is Jesus Christ. The Bible is not meant to affirm our opinions. So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, right now, I ask that you make me a vessel that you can speak through. Father, I pray that every word that flows from this stage be from your word and from your Holy Spirit, Father, not my opinions. They don't need my opinions. The world is full of opinions, Father, but so often it lacks hearing the truth of your word. And Father, I pray that you would begin to soften the hearts of every person in this room or watching and listening online, that you would help us to place opinions aside and hear the truth of your word. Father, I pray these things in your son's name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So there has actually been an increase from generation to generation amongst those who would identify as LGBTQ. In fact, ever since Generation X, the amount of those who would identify has actually doubled each generation. In Generation X, 4.2% of people would say that they, are, that they identify as gay or lesbian. Now, in Generation Y, which is my generation, that's the millennials, 10.5% would identify Generation Z, which is currently those um, later high school age to early 20s, for Generation Z, that number again doubles to now 20.8% of people would identify. If this trend continues, Generation Alpha, which is currently our children, if this trend continues, it is projected that they will be at 41.6% of them will identify as either gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or queer. Now, when something like this changes this fast and this soon, you're left asking the question, what is going on, right? Like, has there been a sudden change to how women give birth to children? Have have we missed this for thousands and thousands of years? Has every generation before us been ignorant when it comes to sexuality or how to express your sexuality? Or is there something else going on? I recognize that there has been a polarization uh, for those who would identify as either gay or lesbian. And I use those terms interchangeably, gay and lesbian. I'll use probably gay from here on out. But there has been a polarization, meaning if you identify as either gay or lesbian, you have probably viewed the church as your enemy. But the same goes for some people in the church who would view the LGBTQ community as being the enemy. And it's the us versus them mentality. Let me tell you, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. Most gay men and women would actually characterize Christians as being those angry people at rallies or those on the street corners with signs that say, all gays go to hell. And that's not an exaggeration because those are actually signs that people from this church saw in Cincinnati this past June. And I just want to say, not all Christians are like that. Those of us who have been forgiven much actually show a lot of love much. One of the first things I did in preparation for this message, 
I actually contacted a former coworker of mine who he identifies as gay. And we met and we had lunch together. And I, I know a lot of his background. I, I know he has some hard feelings towards the church as a whole. He's had run-ins with people who profess Christ but don't act like Jesus. So there are some hard feelings there. But we were still able to have a conversation. We had a very mutual understanding that even though we didn't agree with each other, we could still have a very real conversation. Do you know what I found? Church, I found that it's very hard to hate someone when you are sitting across the table from them, looking into their eyes, hearing the stories, hearing struggles, and just sharing a meal together. Church, every person, regardless of race, tribe, and tongue, whether you agree with them or not, every person is made in the image of God. We're talking about real people here. We're not talking about ideas or hypotheticals. We're talking about sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, grandchildren, friends, coworkers. We're talking about real people. And I have found that when you come to study a subject like this, it's so easy to want to start by thinking of the faces of people you know, friends and family. But I'm going to ask that we not do that. Because we really need to go to the Bible first and let that be what influences our understanding. And so today, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality. And by the end of our time today, we're going to answer a question that has been on the minds of many. Many within culture, within the church, even people in this room have asked this question. That question is, can I be gay and be a Christian? Can I be gay and be a Christian? For my note takers today, I only have two main points. Two main points for my note takers. The first one is this, that homosexuality is contrary to God's design. The lifestyle of homosexuality is contrary to God's design. Now today, I'm going to be speaking with an overarching theme for God's design for all of human sexuality. Uh, Last week, Dale touched just a little bit on God's design for marriage. When we read the Bible, we see that God designed marriage to be between one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime covenant. And when we read scripture, what we find is that any sexual act outside of the marriage covenant of one man and one woman is a sin, which the Bible says, if you don't know, sin is severing intimacy with God. Now, God does show us in his word that there are actually deviations in the Old Testament from this one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime covenant of marriage. We can read about this in Leviticus chapters 18 and 19 by seeing uh, sexual sins and the penalties. We also see this in Genesis uh, 17 and 18 with Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't have time to dive into these passages. I encourage you to read those. However, I do want to say something about the Leviticus passages. Because when you read, anytime you see sexual deviations of any kind from God's design for sexual intimacy, the penalty is the same. The penalty is the same whether heterosexual or homosexual. Now, why do I bring that up? Sometimes, sometimes Christians can have a tendency to want to focus on same-sex perversions or deviations, but they will turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to all sexual perversions 
which the Bible clearly says that any act outside of the marriage covenant is a sin. Today, we're going to look at Romans chapter one. If you want to meet me there in your Bibles, if not, the scripture will be on the screen. Romans chapter one in the New Testament. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. He also writes one to the church in Corinth, which we'll look at briefly. But in these letters, Paul actually has to address the sexual immorality that is taking place during that time. And so if you're in Romans chapter one, we're going to start in verse 18. This is Paul talking. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Now, what Paul is saying here is that, okay, you don't have to know God personally to know that there's someone who created all of this. You can look around the world and see this, it's evident. This didn't just happen by happenstance. Someone created it, but Paul says you miss it because of the unrighteousness in your life, which is suppressing the truth. He continues in verse 24. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Paul saying they've heard the standard of God. They've heard the word of God, right? But they're saying, nah, we're good. We're going to keep doing this our way which is a choice. Everyone has a choice. You either follow God's way or you follow the world's way. But now Paul is going to show us a specific instance of sexual immorality that is taking place. In verse 26, Paul says, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Verse 27, the men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. What Paul is saying is that the judgment of God for this kind of sexual sin in the form of homosexuality, homo means one and the same, hetero means different, the penalty for this Persian is that God allows them to continue in this act of sin. The punishment is that God doesn't rescue them from the homosexual lifestyle. In fact, he gives them over to the devastating consequences of it. Now, what some might say is, well, he's just singling out same-sex attraction. Well, he doesn't really do that because in another letter that Paul writes right after to the church in Corinth, Paul has to address another sexual sin that has taken place, and he says something Pretty similar. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes the letter to the church in Corinth and says, Hey, there is a man in your congregation who is having sex with his dad's wife. So what do we do with him? Paul says, Churn him over to Satan. Remove him from the church so that he can confess, he can repent, he can be restored and redeemed back into the church. So he's not just singling out same-sex attraction. Now Paul ends this chapter in Romans in verse 32 by saying, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die. 
they do not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Now, the key word here is practice. Practice is action. Practice is conduct. There's the distinction. What Paul is trying to show us is that there is a difference between the offense and the offender. There's a difference between attraction and action. What do I mean by this? It's not the attraction to someone of the same sex that prevents someone from having a relationship with Jesus. If that was the case, then every single person in here who has had an attraction to someone other than your spouse, that would just be hopeless. Same-sex attraction is not a sin, but it is the acting upon the attraction through lusting of the mind or physically with the body that the Bible says is a sin which severs our intimacy with God regardless if it's heterosexual or homosexual. Now, friends, here's good news. Paul doesn't end here. He doesn't end here. In fact, if you were to read the entire letter, you'll know that seven chapters later, in chapter 8, Paul says, Praise God, for there is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. In chapter 3, he says, Anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from any sin. He's not just talking about gay men and women. He's talking about all sinners. This is good news. Now, Paul goes on to say something pretty similar to the church in Corinth that was a typical church in the Greco-Roman world that was consumed with sexual perversion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, Paul says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? What a thing to say. Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Paul is saying if you act with this conduct, you are outside of God's design. You cannot expect the blessing of God on your life if you are living in this kind of conduct. Now he goes on to say in verse 11... He goes on to say, and some of you used to be like this. Amen, right? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, Paul was speaking this to a church that was known historically for ritualistic orgies, prostitutional cults, promiscuity. In fact, most scholars say it was so bad that they actually had a name to describe people who were influenced this way. They were called to be Corinthianized. If you were someone that was Corinthianized, this means that you were a sexually perverted person. Paul is urging them. He's saying, you cannot expect the blessing of God. You cannot inherit the kingdom of God living in this conduct. He is pleading with the church. Now, there are some people who might say something like, well, Jacob, Jesus himself never mentioned the word homosexuality. Jesus never talked about that word specifically. 
So since Jesus never mentioned that word, that must mean he's okay with it. And if Jesus is okay with it, then we should be okay with it as well. This is known as the argument from silence. Meaning Jesus was silent on a topic, so therefore he must have been neutral on a topic. Now this argument begins to break down pretty quickly when you realize that there are a lot of things in the New Testament that Jesus himself didn't mention specifically by name. Jesus doesn't specifically mention home invasion. He doesn't specifically mention drug abuse. He doesn't mention, he doesn't mention child sacrifice. He doesn't mention rape. He doesn't mention home, uh, um, he, he doesn't mention uh, uh, human trafficking. There are a lot of things which I think we all can agree on. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that these things are condemned in Scripture. But all because Jesus doesn't mention a specific word doesn't mean he doesn't reaffirm what the Old Testament says and what he believes about the Old Testament. In fact, there are many examples of Jesus referring back to the Old Testament. Jesus actually doubles down on the marriage covenant and basically says that sex is reserved within the covenant of one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. There are many examples of Jesus referring to the Old Testament. We'll look at just one right now. Matthew chapter 19, verse starting in verse 4, this is Jesus talking. He says, haven't you read? He's referring to the Old Testament. Haven't you read? He replied that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus is upholding the marriage covenant that is written in the Old Testament. There are some others who would say, well, well, we're going to play the Jesus words card over the other words card. Like somehow the words in red mean more or have more impact or influence than the words in black. But remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5. He says, not, a, not the smallest letter or the pen stroke of the Old Testament will pass away until all of these things are accomplished. Paul goes on to say that all scripture, do you know what the word all means in the original Greek? It means all. All scripture is breathed out by God. Old and new. If you are studying this subject, if you would study this subject on the internet, I would urge you to be careful. Because you are being subjected to new interpretations of orthodox text from people like Matthew Vines, um, Colby Martin, Jen Hatmaker, or Justin Lee, who are, or who are basically taking these texts and giving them new meaning. Now, I'm not here to attack these people. But I will say something about the new interpretations. In order to get where they are getting at... You have to do exegetical gymnastics on text that has been supported, believed, and affirmed by Christians, and get this, and biblical scholars for the past 2,000 years of Christian history, and for over 2,500 years of Jewish history before that. But don't just take my word for it. Please don't just take my word. Don't just say, well, Jacob said, no, friends. 
Take the Bible and read it for yourself. Ask God to show you in his word what he has to say about homosexuality. If I was to take this book and I was to give it to a thousand people randomly who had never read the scripture, and I was to say, study this for a year, come back and tell me what you have found, not a single one of them would honestly be able to come back and say that they believe that God affirms homosexual relationships or same-sex marriage. You cannot convince me otherwise. But Jacob, are you saying God didn't make me this way? Are, are, Are you saying that my sexuality and my identity are a sin? Point number two, and I need everyone to hear this this morning. Your sexuality is not your identity. You with me? Your sexuality is not your identity. We hear this all the time. In today's culture, we hear this all the time. I'm a gay Christian. I'm a homosexual Christian. I'm a lesbian Christian. What these people are doing is they are taking something that they do to define who they are. But you're not, your identity is not based in your sexuality. One of the reasons that has led us to where we are today is that we have actually elevated our sexuality to an unhealthy standard. Wouldn't you agree? Like the apex of human existence, the defining moment or action in human flourishing is sexual activity. And friends, that is wrong. Please hear me when I say being gay isn't who you are, it's how you are. Big difference. What it can be for some is a label for how you act upon your own desires. There are some people who will um, take words that they use to describe experiences or behavior and they'll use those words to define who they are. You know, I don't, I don't meet you on a Sunday morning and say, hi, my name's Jacob and I'm a straight Christian. I, I, I don't say my name's Jacob and I'm a heterosexual Christian. Why? Because there's no need for a modifier on the front end of a Christian. We don't say, we don't say I'm a gay Christian. We don't say I'm an alcoholic Christian. We don't say I'm a slandering Christian. We don't say I'm a gossiping Christian. Fill in the blank. We just say, I'm a Christian. Because friends, the Bible is clear. There's two categories, Christian and non-Christian. So Christians do not identify by gender, sex, or action. Our identity comes from God who created us. There was an article that was wrote in response to some of these new interpretations fantastic article and in this article I'm going to read a little bit of it it's from author and pastor Tim Keller he says in this article the reason that homosexual relationships make so much more sense to people today than in previous times is because they have absorbed late modern western cultures narratives about the human life Our society presses its members to believe you have to be yourself. 
that sexual desires are crucial to personal identity. That any curbing of strong sexual desires leads to psychological damage. And that individuals should be free to live as they alone see fit. End of quote. There is a debate that has gone on for years. You've probably heard of this in some shape or form. It's a debate on whether a person was born gay or whether they became gay. This is known as the nature versus nurture argument. Meaning, was the person born this way by nature? Or was there something in their environment or in their childhood that nurtured them into being this way? This idea can be traced back mainly to a man, a psychologist by the name of Sigmund Freud, who he basically said that in order to understand what you need to know about a person right now, you have to trace it back to their childhood to see their environment, to see what's going on, and that will tell you what you need to know about how they are now. Now, although I don't agree with everything he says, in one respect he is right. Church, in order to understand what is going on now, we have to trace it back to the beginning. But I'll submit to you, we have to go beyond childhood and go all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Because in the fall of man, every person inherited a sin nature and a propensity to sin. And because of this, this means that we all have desires that we should not act upon. Now, those desires look different for everyone. They they can come in the forms of of alcoholism, sexual immorality, compulsion, anger, violence, whatever it is. We shouldn't act upon desires just because we have those desires. Friend, God did not make you gay. He made you in his image. You and I are representations of God. We are of the essence of God. However, since the fall of man, since we inherited a sin nature, God's perfect creation was broken. And brokenness entered into the world in the forms of deviations from God's design. Disease entered into the world. That wasn't a part of God's design. Cancer. Gender confusion. Idolatry. Immorality. Or any other desire that is not God-honoring. People have been asking the question for years, did I become gay or was I born gay? And they have heard opinions every which way for years. But so many myths. What Jesus is trying to say, because what Jesus says is, you must be born again. That is what really matters. Jesus would say that to anyone living in any sin, not just homosexuality. Because at the core of it all, we have a sin problem. And the cure for your sin problem is not sin modification. You just say, I just need to try harder. I just need to do better or achieve more. No, the cure for your sin problem is sin mortification. You mortify it by humbling yourself and and giving it to God, saying, I confess it as sin. I'm giving it over as sin. As you cling to Jesus 
and experience the grace that can only be found in him. Friends, please listen to me. You don't let anyone, don't let anyone tell you, whether it's your friends, coworkers, don't let the media, social media, textbooks, don't let anything tell you that your identity can be reduced to your affections. Don't let anyone take your experiences and replace your essence with them. Because of what Christ did on the cross, there is where your identity lies. No matter what your past looks like, if you are in Christ, you are a born-again child of the King. Your sins have been forgiven. You are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. You are a new creation, and the Bible says that there is nothing and no one that could ever separate you from the love of God. There's where your identity is. So if that is the case, then don't you think that those of us who have been forgiven much should show a lot of love much? You see, it's only our, our, our job is not just to point out someone's sin as much as it is to point them to Jesus. Point them to the one who can wash them clean. Point them to one that can show them grace upon grace that we could never be able to show. But that is how we show grace, by pointing them to Jesus. If this was a psychological problem, we would send them to a counselor. If this was a medical problem, we would send them to a doctor. But this is a spiritual problem, so we point them to Jesus. Friends, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. People pray all the time, I just pray for my gay son to be straight. Friends, the op- as the church, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. It's holiness. The opposite of any sin is holiness. And we cannot be holy on our own. That is why we turn to and we cling on to the one who is holy. To the one who gives us the grace we do not deserve. Some people would ask the question. They would say, if I was to cling to Jesus, if I was to, come, to become a Christian, would God remove these same-sex attractions? Maybe, maybe not. Through testimony, we know that for some, he has. For others, you may have to live the rest of your life with these same-sex attractions, even as a Christian. However, it will require you to die daily to those desires which are waging war, as Peter says, against our own bodies. Jesus never said, adjust the self. He said, die to self. Jesus never said to indulge ourselves. He said to deny ourselves for the kingdom. But Jacob, is this really a big deal? Can't we in the church just agree to disagree when it comes to sexual immorality? And I'll submit to you the answer is no. 
The answer is no. Paul and Jesus would never allow us to just agree to disagree when it comes to something like sexual immorality. In fact, when Paul spoke of this to the church, he would say emphatically, flee, to flee from sexual immorality. Because what's at stake here? Church, what's at stake is the trustworthiness of the Bible. Because when a culture can begin to reinterpret scripture to fit their present context or to fit the Jesus of their own liking, the Bible ceases to be the word of God. And then what do we have left? We have our own desires, our own opinions, and whatever the culture says is cool or right at the time. Please know that what I'm about to say, I say this with all love in my heart. But if sex was reserved to be within the covenant of a one man, one woman marriage, and you are single, then sex was not intended for you, whether heterosexual or homosexual. We said we would answer the question, and maybe after reading what the Bible says, you have already come to a conclusion. The question is, can I be gay and be a Christian? Can I be gay and be a Christian? If by gay and Christian, you mean that you are committed to Jesus, you serve him faithfully, while having same-sex attractions, but recognizing those attractions are not from God and you repent and confess them and resist them, then yes, you can be a Christian. Of course you're a Christian. It's that way for any believer with any sin. We have to die to those desires. But if you mean by gay and Christian that you profess and serve Jesus, while still embracing same-sex attractions, acting upon those attractions, and celebrating your gay identity. Friends, the Bible is clear. You cannot be a Christian in that lifestyle. And we would say the same thing to anyone encamped in any sin. I want us to understand something. Here at the Wilmington Church of Christ, we are a church that welcomes everyone. In fact, that's one of the first things visitors say they love about our church. We're very welcoming. We're very loving. But all because we're a church that welcomes everyone doesn't mean we have to affirm their lifestyle. You can be welcoming without affirming. You can be loving and not agree with someone. But here we all recognize that we are all broken people with a profound need for a savior. The church of Jesus should not have to be a place where you come into and have to hide the scars of your past. Think about this for a moment. Think about Jesus. Jesus went to the cross in your place, in mine. 
He had nails pierced through his hands and his feet that held him to the cross. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns put on his head. He had a spear jabbed into his side. He took the penalty for sin in our place. He was buried. But then three days later, he resurrected. And when he appeared to the disciples in the upper room on his perfect, resurrected, glorified body, he kept the scars where the nails once were, where the spear once was. It, it was because of the scars the disciples recognized this is our Savior. I say this all the time, and I will continue to say this. The scars of Jesus tell a powerful story about how far God's grace is willing to go just to call you his child. The scars of Jesus shows that the nails that once held him to the cross, they're not there anymore. They don't hold him anymore. And no matter what your past looks like, your scars can say the same thing, that what held you once doesn't hold you anymore. That the scars can tell a powerful story that here is what the grace of God did in my life. I'm not ashamed of my past because look at what Christ did. They can be there to remember. Jesus is so gracious to give us things to remember his grace by. And one of those things is the gift of communion. And if you have those elements, please pull them out. If you don't have any, there are some in the back. I do have one up here. There is no biblical stance on this. It's just something I like to do. Whenever I take communion and I take the bread or the wafer, I break it in half. Just as Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks, symbolizing that his body would be broken in our place. Knowing the sins of our past and present, he is a God who shows grace upon grace. And he says, I'm paying the penalty for that sin. I'm paying the penalty for your future sins. Because that's how much he loves us. And when we partake together, we remember how much he loves us. Let's take the bread together. Whenever I take from the cup, the cup that represents his blood that was shed, I always look at it and I imagine the blood that poured from his nail-pierced hands and feet, from his side, from the scars that he kept. And I just remember that was supposed to be me. That my sins, I am not holy. He is, and my sins are forgiven by the precious blood of the Lamb. Let's partake together. Friends, you should not be ashamed of your past or present because we serve a God who shows grace to us in ways we could never even imagine. He meets you right where you are. 
He loves you as you are and makes you whole again. But he doesn't just leave you there. He wants to transform you. I want to leave you with two things, two takeaways. The first is this. What is outside of God's design is never outside of his redemption. Isn't that fantastic news? What is outside of God's design is never outside of his redemption. And second, if you are convicted about your past, there is hope for your future. If you are someone who is living a homosexual lifestyle, I want you to look at me, whether it's in this room, whether you're watching or listening online. God loves you. He is for you. He, his commands are not life destroying, they are life giving. God is not someone to flee from. He is a father to run to. And he wants to show you grace upon grace because that's just who he is. He wants to give you life and give it to you abundantly. He would say to you this morning, would you repent and turn to me? You can live without sex. You cannot live without a savior. So I'm gonna pray for you here in just a moment, but real quickly, I want to address those of you in the room, and I imagine there might be quite a few. I want to address those of you who have been burdened with someone on your heart that you know that is embracing homosexuality. They're embracing the lifestyle, maybe they're caught up living in it, or they're just embracing it in some shape or form, and they have been a burden on your heart for a while now, and you keep praying, you keep praying. I want you to be reminded of something. God loves them way more than you do. And he is pursuing them way more than you are. The question is, will you trust him in that? We hope you have enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just want more information about our church, be sure to fill out a connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining and we will see you back here next time.